You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Welcome to the Strong Towns Podcast. Today we're doing something a little different. We've started a new webcast called Ask Strong Towns, which will be hosted on a monthly basis by Chuck Marone and other staff and friends of the movement. In it, we give you the chance to ask your burning questions about our vision for change and how the Strong Towns approach might apply in your place. The webcast is open to all Strong Towns members, and you can find more information by visiting the Ask Strong Towns page on our website. I'll include the link in the show notes. So today, and from here on out each month, we're sharing the audio from this webcast with you all. In this episode, Chuck and Kia answered eight different questions on topics ranging from the problems and possibilities of Airbnb to the key metrics we can use to judge whether a town is strong, to Chuck's surprising answer to a question on public engagement processes. We hope you enjoyed this new podcast segment, and please join us on the next live webcast if you want to get your question answered. Become a member today if you'd like to receive your invite. All right, here's the first Ask Strong Towns conversation. Hi, everyone. This is Kia Wilson. I'm the Director of Community Engagement for Strong Towns, here with our president, Charles L. Marone, or Chuck, as you may know him. And we're here to do something we've been really excited about doing for some time at Strong Towns, which is carve out some time to just take your questions. We get hundreds of questions a week from people all over the world about um, the ins and outs of the Strong Towns message and how it applies in your place. And we thought, you know, we are giving these people great answers. Why don't we give them to everyone? So I really don't want to waste too much time. Um, Chuck, do you have anything else you'd like to say about what we're doing here today? Are you ready to dive in? Yeah, no, I'm ready to dive in. I'm, I'm excited. Today is, I just, I should note, today is the Minnesota Twins home opener. And, uh, <laughs> We, uh, I, I saw photos of like a foot of snow on Target Field and people out there with like shovels. So it's going to be very interesting here in like three hours to see what actually transpires. Okay. That's my well, excitement for today. So let's do this. <laughs> well, um, a few points of order before we jump in. There is a Q&A button at the bottom of your screen if you are tuned in live. Um, we have some pre-submitted questions to get us started, and we're going to be alternating between those pre-submitted questions and your live questions. So go ahead and put them in that Q&A button, not the chat. Chat is not where we will be looking unless you are paying us a compliment. I see Michelle just texted us looking good, guys. Michelle, okay, sweet. That, Michelle. Uh-huh. Um, um, and um, otherwise, feel free to ask us anything that's on your mind. I encourage you to keep your questions short and um, don't feel the need to give us a ton of background on the specifics of your town. Um, think about things that are going to benefit people all over the world and all over the country. The problems that you're experiencing in your town are very likely to be common problems in cities and towns across America. So let's go ahead and get started. Could I, I, I ask a quick question? Just yeah. to clarify, the, uh-huh. we, we open, I know we talked about this, but you, we talk about many things and you, you just, you guys just do things and I just try to show up and <laughs> do my best. Um, this is, we, we open this up to members only, right? To we, be here live and ask questions and then we're going to release it as a podcast afterwards. Is that the deal? 
That's the deal. Um, we did allow non-members to pre-submit some questions, but member questions are getting priority today because members are most engaged and active in our movement. Cool. All right. All right. That's awesome. Yeah, I think so too. So the first question does come from a member that this is Rolly Cole from Austin, Texas. It was actually the very first question that we received. And I think it's a great one. I know Rolly. Um, so yeah, Rolly asks, what makes for a good road, not a street or a road, inside the city boundaries? And I know mm. Rolly and I were talking about this a little bit offline. Rolly noticed that most of the time when we talk about eliminating strodes in our cities, we're talking about turning them into streets, making them walkable and friendly for people. Are there situations where it makes more sense to restrict pedestrian asterisk, uh, access, bike access, other non-car uses within a city limit? Yeah, I, I think too, um, it, when we talk about city limits, um, it, it does vary a lot around the country. If you, The further east you go, the more city limits are urban. And the further west you go, like I was in Colorado Springs yesterday, it's almost 200 square miles. Uh, it's a massive, like huge city. And only a small part of that we would call urban. The rest of it you would call very suburban, even like exurban and rural in parts of it. Um, so definitely you're going to go through all kind of types of, of roads uh, as you go through that. I, I think a good road is about moving people quickly. Uh, it's about moving goods. It's about moving materials. And so essentially when you're making a, a good road, what you're doing is you're limiting access. Uh, every time you have a driveway, every time you have an access point, every time you have even an interchange, um, what you're doing is you're creating uh, basically like cross movement uh, as opposed to just flow. And when you get cross movement, e even back in my fluid mechanics classes, you know, you create turbulence in the, in the flow and that's going to slow things down. It's going to make things less, uh, less quick, less efficient. Um, you know, it's going to take more time and, and that investment's going to be a lesser of an investment. A lot of times we struggle uh, on strodes because it will be, you know, strip mall, McDonald's, big box store, and none of the places want their access closed. And I get, I get that. I think the important like first step is to not open new accesses on places mm -hmm. where you say like, this is about moving traffic. And then over time, uh, basically rerouting that traffic through streets basically in a very slow way mm -hmm. so that when it gets on the road, it gets on at like a convergence point. Um, and then the road itself actually moves very quickly. Um, I think that the strode to road conversion is actually very, from a like technical standpoint, uh, from a, a actual going out and doing it, you run into a lot of like deep political problems. And I actually think long-term, uh, the, the, the kind of the most viable strategy, particularly in a place like Austin, is to, first of all, not allow that, not create new accesses. And then second of all, as these places kind of struggle, as part of your rehab strategy for them, is to consolidate accesses as much as possible. And, uh, you know, I, I don't really, to me, like going out and, dying on the hill of trying to close Walmart's access is probably not like a viable, that's probably like a low hanging fruit strategy. Right. Um, but I think if you can think of that as like something you would incrementally build up to, to make that road really function well as a good connection, um, you know, you kind of have in mind what those incremental steps would be. 
Thanks so much. Does that I, make sense? I mean, St. Louis, St. Louis has got a lot of these, um, oh, yeah. Weird places. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and I think, you know, there's a desire to like move very quickly from one neighborhood to the other. And people often struggle with that. Like, well, what do you mean, Chuck? This should all be slow. And I, I think Same. what we're talking about here is creating neighborhoods right. and have things be very slow in the neighborhood and then connecting the neighborhoods. So if you live like in between neighborhoods, basically what we're trying to do is get you connected to that neighborhood center. Um, and, and, and the further you are from that neighborhood center, I think the, the more problematic that connection becomes, right? Right. I mean, I think in St. Louis, there are areas where um, Strodes are running right alongside vibrant, you know, to use a buzzword, <laughs> neighborhoods, yeah, neighborhoods yeah. where people are living, there's dense residential use, and then there's this, this huge sore thumb. And there are other areas where Strodes have killed off all signs of life. <laughs> and like, there are right. a couple of houses hanging on, and maybe they should be roads. Maybe over time, there, there are areas where you can start making those transitions. I think people right. have, average citizens have instincts about this that they should listen to and speak up about. I also think just in a large paradigm sense, um, what we're talking about here is an incremental shift over time. Right. It, 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 we're so used to working in, well, let's make this a really nice street. So let's go out and spend $3 million on a street reconstruction. Um, no, what we're really talking about here is how do we, I mean, I, I can see a city like Austin or St. Louis or even my hometown of Brainerd going in and instead of having a hierarchical roadmap, uh, change their roadmap to say, here's where our streets are, that we're building wealth. And here's where our roads are, where we're moving people. And then over time, the strategy is to uh, incrementally bring it more towards that prototype. Um, you know, th 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 that's not going out and saying, we're going to close everybody's access on the next two miles to make this, right. you know, spend millions of dollars to do that. But it's looking for opportunities over time to, to make those things happen. So that's a good segue into a live question that we just got from, I believe it's Pam Zedak. I'm not seeing a first name, but if I'm remembering my members, right, I think that's her. Um, Pam asks, what are some of the key metrics by which to discern whether a town is healthy financially and a lively strong town? The mentality of our city council is that our bonds are triple A rated, so oh, we're good. <laughs> oh, yeah. So this is a classic question. What do you think, Chuck? Uh, well, let's start with that, the bond rating thing. Um, I actually just rewatched the complete, the, uh, the big short. Um, uh, mm. Just like I was somewhere where I was like had time and nothing else to do and couldn't work. So I wound up watching the big short and uh, it's, it's fascinating because in there, there's a scene where they're in talking to the rating agencies and it's very clear that like the rating agencies have no clue. Um, I've actually met with a, a group of uh, municipal bond raiders. Um, they were not just Moody's, but other organizations. They had a meeting uh, and I was invited to attend and present to them. And I will tell you, and this should probably come as no shock to anyone, uh, my presentation like blew their mind. They had no, they're like, wow, we never knew this. We never yeah. thought about this. We never considered any of this. Um, I asked them and I, I, you know, engage, like explain to me how you go about doing what you do. And basically they say, they look back historically since World War II, basically since the Great Depression, very few municipalities have ever defaulted. When they've defaulted, there's a, a very key set of metrics that they look at. Um, and they're basically relying on the fact that this rarely happens to say it likely will rarely happen. Um, they're not really taking into account this whole life cycle thing and how things are very different today than they were in 1950 and 1960 
um, cities are in a much different position. Hmm. So I, I have actually zero faith in the rating <laughs> agency's ability to grasp what's going on, uh, particularly when it comes to municipal debt. So the question is, how do we, what kind of metrics do we use to say if we're doing well or we're not? Um, we put together the 10 point strength test. And I actually think the, the strength test is, it, it, it is uh, for, as an engineer, it's a little squishy in terms of like, it isn't, here's the ratio of this to that. Here's the equation you use to figure this right. out. But I actually think the squishiness is kind of the advantage that it has. Um, I actually think that the idea of a city being something reducible to metrics is, uh, is, a, is a fiction. Mm. Um, I think it's something that we would like to believe. Um, but I think if we look more at uh, these broader outcomes that are contained in those 10 points of the strength test, what you really get a sense of is how dynamic is a city, how resilient is a city, how flexible and adaptable is this place and, and how really strong or fragile is it? I'll just, as a, as a last point, um, Quint Studer in Pensacola and the Studer Institute has been working on a series of community metrics for Pensacola. And I don't have their, I, I don't know their website off the top of my head, but if you just look for Studer Institute Pensacola metrics on Google, you'll find it. Uh, I think they've developed a pretty good set of, kind of broad dashboard kind of things about the community. It gets into education. It gets into uh, poverty rates and things like that that I think are good indicators. Um, but it also talks about the amount of debt and debt service and some of those things that, I, that, I, that are kind of parallel to the strength test as well. Um, I think we would all like like a, a nice equation to tell us whether we have a strong town. And I think that, you know, at the end of the day, that just is not, I think if you're paying attention to our conversation, you realize that mm -hmm. it's just not that simple. Right. And we shouldn't try to simplify it down to that or we, we'll lose a lot. Right. I agree completely. Um, so I want to turn to a pre-submitted question now that I, I thought was a great one. I'd never thought about it in quite this way, and you'll see why in a moment. So this one comes from James Demby of Raleigh, North Carolina. And James says, I live in a city where the economy is booming and the population and jobs are growing quickly. It seems like we're doing lots of things right. Do you have any advice for building momentum for a strong town's approach in a place like this? Uh, there are feel like there are too many areas where I could dedicate my time because there are so they're so good for the city right now and each one is difficult. And the reason I had never thought about this is because I don't have this problem in St. Right, Louis. Right. We do not, we are right. not booming. And I'm so curious what you think, Chuck, how do you sell an incremental strong town style approach in a community that to put it bluntly is in a phase of the growth Ponzi scheme where everyone thinks everything's going great. Right. This is the, this is the hard one. And, you know, when I travel, this phone God, never rings. <laughs> and it seems like every time I get on a call, this thing rings. So let me just shut this off for a second. Yeah, it's all good. I can keep us going here. I want people to continue to um, submit like questions. Like that is a total sales call too. How oh, no. <laughs> There's no way to shut that off either. Sorry, Murphy's everybody. Law, it's going to happen. I it gave people a chance to submit a few more questions. Okay. So, so um, all good. The, I, 
as I travel around the country and talk to places, the places that are the most difficult to have this conversation with are the ones that are deep in the illusion of wealth. The places that are, hey, like everything is great here. We're doing everything great. And in fact, I can go back to my own past, my own like early engineer days uh, when I worked for uh, an engineering firm that did stuff in the neighboring city of Baxter. Mm-hmm. Baxter here in central Minnesota is the suburban place. This is where the farm that my great-great-grandparents homesteaded is located. It's where I grew up. Uh, when I was a kid, it was 1,000 people. Now it is 9,000. Uh, when I was a kid, it had like an old A&W beer stand and a couple little you know, shops. Now it has Target and Walmart and Super Walmart and uh, the whole strip of, uh, of chain restaurants and all that. It's the place where the bypass went through and they just exploded. I think the fascinating thing about it, just from like a human psychology standpoint, is that when we worked in Baxter, um, there, there was like a, a general consensus that these people were really smart. Like they had it figured out. And, and the, the reason you could say they had it figured out is just look, um, you know, this place looks good. This place has money. This place is doing well. And then you would look across the river to Brainerd which was the old railroad town, which had the old grid and the old neighborhoods, but things were neglected and run down. They struggled with their budgets. They weren't doing quite as well. And you would say, these people are not as smart, has not, have not figured out as well. Um, these people are you know, making the wrong decisions. And what I've come to realize is that this was a little bit, not a little bit, it was a lot like confirmation bias, right? Like I'm on the winning team. We are smart. We have it figured out. Right. Uh, they're not, so they must be. And and I've just come to realize how like silly that actually is. It's very hard to break through in a place where um, everything is working out well, and you feel you you want to feel when you're part of that. Like the reason it's working out well is because you somehow are like King Midas, and everything you touch turns to gold. As opposed to it's just your day in the sun, you know you're mm. you're you're you're, uh, you're enjoying the, that illusion of wealth phase of the Ponzi scheme. Right. So where do you start to, you know, where do you start to a conversation in that place? Um, I, I, for me, I feel like it's really important for all of us to not like jump in front of the train or to jump in front of like the moving bus. Uh, or the semi, in this case, of the uh, illusion of wealth, the semi full of imported goods. It's important not to like jump in front of that and die, right? Like that's, you don't want to die on that hill. (laughs) To me, it's all about like getting momentum going where you can. And so when people ask me like, where do I start? I always say, start by getting to know your neighbors. Start with the block in front of your house and the people around you. How do you make that a better place? What would make that like incrementally the next step towards becoming a a strong town. How do you then connect to people on the next block and throughout the neighborhood? And how do you build momentum there? Um, Look at your community and find where the low hanging fruit is. Um, What you're trying to do in your place is actually start a movement for change. And you won't do that by going out to the edge and fighting Walmart and telling them like, you know, this is why we're going bankrupt. I I don't think that it's bad to interject some of that into the conversation and start to educate people and share these ideas and let people know. Um, But I think the places where you want to spend your energy um, are the places where you can start to build a community of people 
who are seeing things differently and want things to change and are ready to push back on that and, 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 and can come to grips that this illusion of wealth is not going to last. Um, in booming places, those are hard to find. Right. Um, but as you get it started now and as time goes on and things become more difficult in those places, uh, your movement will gain credibility, it will grow, and, and you'll be the difference maker in whether your place succeeds or fails. Does that... I mean, you, you, yeah. you have spent your life mostly in places that have struggled. Yes. Um, I spent a, a big part of my career in places that did not, places that mm. were growing gangbusters. Um, does that resonate with you as a person who kind of has the opposite experience? It does. And I will say that, you know, just because I've lived in failing industrial Midwestern <laughs> cities doesn't mean it's easy. Right. No, it's not um, to easy. To get people to say, this is the reason why it's failing. This right. is like, because there's a million things to blame. And I mean, one concept that I had introduced to me by a mentor of mine is that when you're talking to someone whose mind you're trying to change, it's not like converting someone to a religion. It's like moving a needle on a speedometer. You're trying to get Amen. someone, you're working incrementally, just like we're talking right. about all the time and, um, at Strong Towns. You're trying to isolate something that means something to that person, identifying it and connecting it with what you believe in and sort of nudging them towards a bigger solution. That's why I feel really proud that Strong Towns um, is able to be a media organization and that we're able to talk about um, how not just our mission, we're bringing it to your town, we're telling you what's wrong with you, we're performing an analysis. We're able to talk about how this impacts an infinity of things. So in a thriving town, you know, the, the most thriving town I've probably ever lived in was Santa Fe, New Mexico, um, which is it's a great place. Of, yeah. It's a wonderful place. And it's thriving yeah. mostly because of tourism and amazing geography and an arts and culture scene, you know, like that's the only place I've ever lived. Well, I guess I lived in Annapolis for a little bit and the rents, but basically it's the only place I've ever lived where the rent was like over $650 a month for a one bedroom, you know, like I've been stuck in the 1970s rent wise, most of my adult life. And the way that I would probably try to encourage someone in Santa Fe to look at it is say, look at the, the neighborhood, um, the neighborhoods in your town that are really the most exciting, where the most people are walking around, where the reason people come to Santa Fe is to go to the plaza and to look at these traditionally incrementally developed places. And when you get out of town and you start to drive down the strodes, things are changing. What kind of Santa Fe do you want to leave behind you? What's personal to you? And then you can start introducing some concepts of, you know, what is happening when the plaza is offsetting all of the costs for this, you know, sprawl or whatever you want to call it on the outskirts of town. So right. that, that's all I'd weigh in on that one. I agree. I, I think the idea of getting the, the guy out of the Hummer and onto a bike is like a silly waste of time. Totally. What you need to do is help the person who would like to bike twice a week, but only bikes once make that shift to twice a week or five times right. a week or, and, and if you can focus on that, what you do is you create a culture around the change and ultimately you will get to the Hummer guy. But when you get to him, right. he will be surrounded by people who are already like made this shift and it won't seem like such a radical, crazy idea. 
And there's probably some other way that you can reach the Hummer guy. You know, it's not going to be getting out of his Hummer, but maybe he has like an elderly parent who is having some trouble aging in place. And that has real impacts for him. So let's move on to one of our live questions. Um, This is an interesting one that I'm I'm hoping we haven't written about, but I'm very curious because this is a big conversation in St. Louis at the moment. What are your thoughts on home sharing, Airbnb, VRBO, I don't know what that one stands for, et cetera. Can home sharing or short-term hotels help make for a strong town or as so many of my neighbors think, both Joel and me, does it weaken towns and neighborhoods? How does Airbnb enter into our conversations about financial stability in our places? I, I think that if that were a simple question, um, you know, it probably wouldn't be asked. It, right. I, I, there's, there's a lot of like dimensions to the Airbnb and the, the room sharing issue today. Um, and I think it all goes back to the fact that we build static places, not dynamic places. We don't right. build places that are designed to grow and change and evolve. We build places all at once to a finished state and then they are done. And we don't anticipate that they will ever change. Um, the, the problem with that is that these places serve a really valuable function. Um, it, it, historically, if we go back to even the early 1900s, what we see is that cities were full of bed and breakfast and people renting out the room in the back of their place and uh, all kinds of like miscellaneous units uh, just uh, everywhere. Uh, that, you know, that people were renting in, in, in all different ways, you know, by, by the day, by the week, by the month, by the year. Um, and and that, it was a very like fluid and flexible market. And at the same time, people were able to add kind of incrementally and, and, and they didn't do it incrementally because of regulation. They did it incrementally because there was a relationship with the underlying land values. Um, you know, there were reasons why you built in this way that, that were really tied to the finance of the place. People were able to respond to market demands by adding more housing units. Today, um, what we see is often where Airbnb is most popular are places where uh, home prices are incredibly high. They're very distorted. The the markets themselves are kind of locked in and um, not flexible, not able to evolve and change, not respond to market demands. Mm -hmm. And so what we see a lot of times is that people will uh, bid up homes either with the sole purpose of renting them out, um, which is Mm -hmm. like a completely different business model than living in the neighborhood um, or uh, supplementing their rent or their, you know, or what they have to pay their mortgage, their mortgage, right. By, by renting and leasing the place out uh, occasionally. Mm -hmm. Um, I do think that both of those could be healthy responses if the underlying land use pattern was more dynamic. Um, Those would be indicators that like, okay, good, you can invest in this neighborhood. Let's go to the next increment of intensity. Let's make something happen here. But in in a development framework where the neighborhood is static and not able to evolve, all it does is just create massive tension. Um, lots of capital flowing in, lots of displacement, uh, lots of distress, really, and a huge distortion of uh, what I think are the natural market conditions there. Mm. So I think we focus on Airbnb. We say like Airbnb is the problem here. Right. Um, Airbnb, in my mind, is like a modern day reconstitution of really the way we the, the way we occupied housing for thousands of years. Right. Um, I, I, you know, I, I think there are some issues with it and, and it, I think maybe needs to, you know, in the next, 
iteration of it will grow and expand a little bit. The problem is really that underlying static condition of the places we've built. And right. unless we deal with that, uh, our attempts to, you know, kind of arbitrarily regulate what people can do uh, in terms of renting their houses and their spaces and using them and occupying them is rather silly. And I think going to be rather counterproductive too. And really not going to resolve things, right? Right. I couldn't agree more. And I think that's beautifully said. We are having referendums Referenda. I remember my Latin here. Is it <laughs> um, referenda? Because we're having. I think so. We're, we're having a referendum today. <laughs> we okay. will have a series of referenda. I think. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> um, that's my pretentious interlude for the moment. Well, you're the English person. I'm. I'm just. Yeah, I'm not the Latin person though. That's so. true. Um, and we've been having all of these uh, town halls on Airbnb in St. Louis, and part of me is. Like, why are we talking about it in exactly this way? Like, there are problem Airbnbs in St. Louis with no doubt. In St. Louis, there's, you know, they ran a piece on Mr. Money Mustache, our friend over on that blog, yep. about a woman who had bought eight separate buildings in St. Louis, Missouri, each for under $60,000 a piece for the explicit purpose of creating Airbnb. Would those spaces be better used with neighbors who are going to actively add to the fabric of the community? Absolutely. But these houses are for sale for $60,000. What got us to that point where right, that's right. the only person who can invest in this space? Like, right. I like the fact that Airbnb and systems like it are able to bring some fluidity and some, you know, like flexibility back into our housing pattern. Do right. I think that a perfectly functioning, fantastic neighborhood where everyone is bought in would have a lot of Airbnbs? No, but the way to get it isn't by saying, let's kick out Airbnb. You have to look at the root causes. That's it, really important. It actually might have a percentage of Airbnbs. It, it might have one, two, three percent. And, and it might be like, you know, the, the widowed woman who wants to uh, selectively totally. lease out the, the, the back bedroom to help her stay in that neighborhood. I think that would be a beautiful like solution to it. I've, I've seen places in, and Johnny Sanfilippo wrote about one in Detroit uh, where, you know, a couple had moved there, basically downsized their lifestyle um, bought a house, created a garden, uh, work very minimally, actually, have a, enjoy like a very high quality of life. And they supplement their meager income because they have meager costs. They don't, right. it's a pretty low burn rate where they live um, by having an Airbnb unit in their place. Um, I, boy, the history is like littered with stories of people who, rented out a place to make ends meet. And I think that that is like a natural human condition. Um, right. We deny that today. And I think we deny that uh, to the damage, not of the wealthy, but of the, of the poor and the upstart. Right. So let's go to a pre-submitted question here. Um, I'm going to skip to one from Jordan Yee from Pensacola, Florida, since we gave Pensacola a shout out earlier in the conversation. Yeah. Um, and Jordan asks, you present a simple and compelling argument for why our current development patterns are bankrupting our local governments. What factors are not being considered when looking at the taxable value heat maps that we see from our friends at Urban 3? And mm. for people who haven't seen those, those are um, when we look at the land tax per acre and where the concentrations of real productivity are geographically in their cities and towns. What is that not taking into account and does it matter? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, it, you know, as an engineer, as a planner, 
there, there's a certain level of comfort that you can get with the mathematical abstractions that we come out of a place like Urban 3. And really, when we have delved into, and, and I'll, I'll say this, um, not to impugn uh, the, the Urban 3 business model, which really, if you hire them, you're simply hiring brilliance. That's what you're doing. Um, but if you look at, like, when we did Lafayette, Louisiana, uh, we did a quarter million dollar deep dive study looking at every revenue source, every expense, mapping them out. It was, it was, it was deep and intricate. And what we found at the end of the day is that it was almost perfectly correlated with the very rough and easy value per acre map. Mm -hmm. um, so you look and you're like, okay, we can get like 98% of the answer with a very quick and easy approach. Um, or we can like spend 10 times that amount and get this very, very precise answer. Um, so what I have found is that the value per acre mapping really is kind of the back of the envelope way to see how you're doing and, and, and what's working. It's a little bit like, I think, like the ecologist going into the forest. And if they see like a certain species of bird, right. like it, it's like an indicator to them that like, okay, things are functioning under the surface here. It's a, it's a little bit like a, a, the, the visual abstraction of the strength test, right? Mm -hmm. And sometimes people struggle when we talk about wealth and value creation, they think like, oh, Chuck, why do we just focus on money? Cities are so many other things. And th this is true. Um, but understand what is reflected in that, that wealth, that value. Um, what you're seeing is actually, and I'm, I'll quote Steve Mozan here, uh, you know, wrote the original green. What you're actually seeing, and this will sound odd coming from an engineer, what you're actually seeing is love love for a place, mm -hmm. love for a neighborhood, love for, uh, you know, uh, a, 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 a series of underlying things that are reflected in that. Um, when we look at value per acre, we see poor neighborhoods actually perform better than wealthy neighborhoods. Right. Um, we see the little Jimmy's pizza actually perform better than the pizza hut out on the edge of town. Um, there is something there uh, that this kind of mathematical abstraction captures. And while I'm not going to claim that, you know, you can do site planning based on value per acre, you can certainly do on a coarse neighborhood level an understanding of where the passion of a community lies um, by looking at that. I feel like that map captures, and I'll, I'll, I, I, I just use the term love, and I, I think that, you know, if, if we could break down like all the Greek ways of describing love, I think what you're talking about is like a, whatever the word would be that talks about like an attachment to a place. Mm. Um, you're talking about, you know, the, the, the business relationships that people form. You're talking about the, the personal relationships that people form. You're talking about the schools, uh, the neighborhoods, the parks, the, the backyard barbecues, um, you, you're, you, there's a whole lot that's captured in that, that goes way beyond the financial. The financial is like a very quick snapshot that gives you that. Uh, and the map shows you that like very quickly. Um, but what you're, what you're showing is a, a, a deeper bond, a deeper connection, a deeper strength and a, a deeper resiliency. Mm. I, I, I'm not going to stand up here and say, we should in all places seek to maximize value per acre. But if we did, 
our cities would not be bad places. You know, right. they, they would, they would not be bad places. You, you would have a, a, a better development pattern. I think you would have more connection um, and more positive things happening if you, if you did that. Right. The only thing I might add to that is to check out Rachel's article about um, it, about sales tax was related to this conversation. I'll post a link to it when this goes live on the podcast, because that I thought was a really interesting data-based Urban 3 was involved in the writing of the article, way of debunking the myth that, um, you know, that shopping mall out on the edge of town that is like a cancer of land tax values in all directions is making up for it by selling a lot of jeans to people, and that's adding to the tax coffers in another way. That's simply not true. Right. Um, and there are other taxation uses, I'm sure, that we could talk about. About like employment centers and income taxes and things like that. I bet you Urban Three could probably debunk those systematically over time. <laughs> you know, right. I, I do think too that like a really important thing here, and Michelle or Rachel just shared that uh, mm-hmm. link in the chat, so people oh, great. can see it. I, I think the very interesting thing about it is when we when we take snapshots of communities that are at different points of that illusion of wealth. Um, what we see is that, you know, not only do those uh, traditional neighborhoods outperform, not only do they have the value per acre, um, but they, they tend to, and this is the, goes straight to the Taco John's example, the variability there on the downside is much less. Mm-hmm. Like they don't, they don't collapse. And that mall eventually just like falls off the table in value. Right. Um, that right. big box store just dies. And so, you know, I, I do think that when we look at value per acre and we look at those maps and we start to understand our community in that way, um, we have to understand that it's a really good snapshot and it will tell you a lot, but it's not a dynamic analysis. A dynamic analysis mm-hmm. over time is one that you would do year after year after year and show how right. these trends change. And, and, and I think that even then, it bolsters that notion that these traditional walkable neighborhoods not only financially just kill it, but they hold their value over time because th- there's a lot of, and I'll go back to Steve Mozan again, there's a lot of love for these places. Mm-hmm. Um, That's great. Yeah. I like the idea of a map of love. <laughs> it, I, I think you could, you know, I, I feel a little like hippie-ish saying that because I'm no, like, like you, know, <laughs> you know, I'm like the conservative engineer yeah. and I'm, I'm not trying to like bolster my hippie right. credentials. But I'm I mean, leading our liberal, so I'm on board. Yeah. <laughs> we'll go for it. <laughs> but I mean, you, you are talking about like a deep connection to a place. Right. And, uh, and, and that's something that does show up in the financial part. So let's go to a live question from Stephen Buckley. Um, what needs to happen so that more people understand? Um, I would augment this a little bit. He says the legal requirements for involving them in the planning process for public projects. I would also include uh, the community input, like when the meeting is and how to actually get there. Rachel wrote a great article about how incredibly hard it is, even for a civically engaged person like her who writes for Strong Towns, to figure out when the heck she needs to show up at City Hall and say yes or no to a project that's being proposed. And Stephen also asks a follow-up question, which is, are you aware of the current administration's plan to streamline, that is, cut back on the public planning process for infrastructure projects? How important is community uh, government originated community engagement for creating the kind of bottom up planning that we want to see in a strong town. I will uh, risk 
maybe being a little extra provocative and, and, and making some people upset. Yeah, by I'm, I'm going to say something that maybe is like a step or two beyond what I actually believe, but I want to I want to make this point. I actually think that the public engagement processes we use today are largely worthless. Hmm, um, interesting. I don't. If you if you look here back, back in the um, you know back in the early automobile. Uh, highway building days, we just went out and built highways. We didn't have public engagement. And if we had public engagement, it was just to tell people like, we're ripping down your neighborhood. Sorry. You know? Um, <laughs> and, and, and what happened is that ultimately because of uh, the backlash of that at the federal level, we came in and we created all these public engagement processes. Um, the, uh, the, the uh, environmental laws, the NEPA laws, uh, went in and created, you know, requirements for public hearings, requirements for environmental reviews, uh, notification requirements, and, and all these things kind of crept into how we do government. I worked in that system for a long time. I mean, I started doing engineering work and worked on many projects like this. And then as a planner, when we did zoning work, um, we had like official notification we had to follow. It's very sterile. It's very right. generic. It empowers the people who know what's going on. So the staff, the council members who are used to working in this environment, the big developers, the attorneys who are used to working in this environment, it, it does very little uh, except give like a populist out, uh, outlet for the pitchfork and torch crowd to show up and, and yell and scream and get really mad. I guess you could say there's more transparency today than there used to be. But I don't really feel like there's a, a, a good functional way for us to really discern uh, public, you know, public desire, public input, or really have the public kind of lead the direction we go in. Mm. There are places that have tried to deal with this. And, you know, as a planner, I remember back in the day where, well, we're going to have a public meeting and we're going to get everyone in and we're going to have them, you know, do sticker charts on the wall and have them prioritize yeah. their things. And, and I, I guess I've grown disillusioned with those as well. I, I see mm. we would have a big public meeting and we'd invite people in and they'd come in and say, you know, uh, my sidewalk is just all cracked up and I wish someone would maintain it. And I got potholes all over my street. And you know what? I would love a community center. And then everybody goes through and they, they put the little concerns and then they're like, you know, a community center would be really great. Okay. And at the end of the day, uh, what you'd see is this like huge board full of small little things that needed to be done in the community. And then like a whole bunch of people who said a community center would be great. And instead of as staff, as, as, as officials uh, looking at this, seeing like a list of hundreds of little things that we need to go out and do, what you see is a mandate for a community center right. or a mandate for a pyramid-shaped stadium or a mandate for yeah. you know, name your big silver bullet project. And so I almost feel like that process is, is, is broken as well. What we have advocated for now for a while, uh, and I talk about this in the Neighborhoods First presentation, the Neighborhoods First report we put together, uh, it draws deeply uh, on inspiration from the Better Block group, from uh, the Street Plans group and the Technical Urbanism book that they put out. The idea of, of going out and observing where people struggle mm -hmm. and then asking the question, what is the next smallest thing we can do right now to address that struggle? You're not polling people. You're not sending them a right. survey. You're not gathering them together. Um, what you're doing is you're basically user testing. And, and you can draw from, I think, the tech field in this, which does a really great job. Steve Jobs uh, was famously quoted as saying, if I had went out and polled people what they wanted, they would have said they wanted a better Walkman. 
You know, mm. they would never have come up with the iPod. Yeah. And, but what, what he did is they developed this thing. They rolled it out. They tested it. They saw how people used it. And then they iterated. Google mm. does this all the time. Google doesn't roll out like, here's our brand new version of Gmail. It completely changes right. it. <laughs> what they do is they'll, they'll do a little tweak. They'll watch how people use it. They don't ask you, like, do you like this or not? Because what they found is that from a human psychology standpoint, we're a bunch of chimpanzees and we can't really explain what we like and why we like it. We, we, we don't. We're really bad at this. But yeah. if you watch what people do, you get a really good sense of what needs to happen. And so tech companies do, have, have gotten really, really good at iterating in this way. Um, we even have done this with our website. We go out and ask people like, what do you want on the Constantly. website? And then we put it in there and then nobody uses it. And then we go in and we put something else in and like everybody uses it. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't the thing that people said they wanted. So I think cities need to uh, invert their process to mm -hmm. be less about the decision makers decide the policy, they go sell it to the public, mm. they have the required public hearing, and the public hearing becomes like a, a bitch session or a place right. to like sell something. And instead, start with, let's go out and observe where people struggle. Let's do small improvements to try to address that today, where those take off and work well and actually uh, fit mm. in. Let's make them more permanent. Let's scale them up. Let's improve them over time. Let's iterate. Right. To me, that's, the, that's, the, that's like the core of the Strong Towns approach. I totally agree. And I think this, this uh, for further reading, you might check out Daniel Harridge's article, Give the People What They Want, which I think pointed out a lot of the things you're talking about, about yeah. the problems with community engagement processes that I've witnessed firsthand. I was just talking to a member on Facebook the other day about a, process, a community engagement session I went to in my neighborhood where you know, a developer was trying to, you know, take the temperature of the neighborhood about a lot that had a community garden on it that they wanted to develop into, of course, a 10 family apartment building on a block that like the highest level of intensity is for a family. I think maybe it was like 20 or something, some crazy number basically. And they went and listened to the community and they came back with a plan that had this apartment building wrapping around the community garden. And there was a gate in front of it that you would just have to get a code. You know? yeah. And they put some solar panels on the roof so it would continue being an ecological site. And right. it was just things were just- Hey, we like, met everything you said you wanted. It did, you know, right. technically speaking. But it brought up these questions for me of like, what do we really mean? What does it really mean to listen to a group of people? What does right. it mean to not just hear, this is what I value, this is what I want, I want a community garden. I want a solar panel on this roof. But actually, um, hear what's important to people in terms of their behavior, what they do, what they actually, how they actually use space, um, and how you can, you know, make room for imagination in that process. Because I love your iPod example. The way that you're going to get to a better uh, way to build a mousetrap isn't to ask people what's wrong with your current mousetrap. It's to right. actually think like fiction writers in a lot of ways, science fiction writers sometimes. So, well, let me let me add to to that. And yeah, at the risk of like running off the rails here, um, I think that you uh, and, and many others have helped me uh, develop a a respect for the notion that like I don't. Um, I don't understand the experiences of, of everybody else. 
And, you know, we can we can talk about gender and race and all kinds of things in that. But I think if we just acknowledge that as professionals working in these fields, uh, we have a very limited view of the world. Um, We are not capable. And and, and even if we wanted to be, um, we are not capable of understanding the the wide variety of viewpoints. Mm. And and quite frankly, I I will acknowledge that sometimes people come to me with ideas and I'm like, that's nuts. Like I, I (laughs) and then I will think about it for a while and I'll try to understand it from their standpoint. And, And my initial gut rejection of it uh, was absolutely wrong. Like I just didn't understand mm. their their viewpoint and their frame of, of, of reference. I, I think that as we stitch together our cities, as we put our cities back together, as we deal with this decline from this experiment we've been on, the one thing that we need more than anything else is humility. We need to mm. acknowledge that we do not understand, uh, right. you know, the, the, either A, the damage we've done or B, how we're going to put it back together. Uh, but the people who are living with it and living through it g- grasp that in ways that we cannot. And if we can just humble ourselves to go out and actually observe how they're using the city and where they're struggling, um, I think a lot of the angst and anxiety we have over our inability to communicate across race and across genders and across socioeconomic status, I think a lot of those things, I'm not saying they will be solved overnight. Um, but I think we'll get to a more authentic uh, public engagement process um, because we start with the premise of we're humble and we don't know. Yeah, I like that. Well, that got a little heavy. So let's go to a slightly more grounded question. This okay. is from the, the pre-submitted questions since we just uh, talked about the human condition and human psychology for a little while. So Gregory Good of East Orange, New Jersey asks, East Orange has what sounds like to me like a walkable human-scaled historic main street that is buttressed by the regional rail line with two train stops. It also has two large tracts of land that are more distant from that historic core um, and its train stations to the tune of about eight acres. Should the city's priority be to get those vacant eight acres into productive use or to invest in the historic Main Street? Um, So I might add to this, should East Orange and cities like it prioritize investment in existing human-scale neighborhoods or in developing new vacant parcels and putting them to productive use? What if I just said yes? I mean, I I think that that's that's a cop out in a way. Yeah. Um, here's, here's where I would go with that. I, I think that oftentimes we say, okay, um, and I'm not going to put words in his mouth, but, but it seems like what is being asked is like, we only have the energy and the capital and the debt capacity and the resources to take on one of these things. So which one should it be? And for me, I kind of reject that, that premise. I feel like we should be doing incremental things in both places. If you force me to choose, of course, I'm going to choose, um, you know, let's incrementally build the downtown and then let's look at the surrounding core neighborhoods and say, how do we connect them and create this kind of virtuous feedback loop between the surrounding neighborhoods and, and the core downtown? Eventually doing that, we would work out to the, the eight acres out on the edge or the eight acres in the, you know, a, a little ways out. Um, but, but, you know, to me, when we got to those eight acres, we would again be working incrementally. Um, you know, are there utilities around the outside of it? Okay, then maybe we develop the outside first 
or like focus on getting just things going there right now where we already have the road and we already have the connection as opposed to putting stuff internally and trying to build that up. I think it's really hard for us because we've gone through this long, you know, decades long period of time where we're used to instant transformation. It's hard for us to think about things incrementally. Uh, and so we look at like, you know, should we instantly transform downtown or should we instantly transform uh, this eight acres? Which one would be better? And I think we should instantly transform nothing. We should incrementally work in both yeah. places. Totally. It's interesting. Let me add this because I know people have asked us a lot lately about, and, and, and I think the place where particularly, um, and you can push back on this if you want, but I think particularly <laughs> like progressive uh, kind of big, people who look to government to do big transformative things struggle with our message is that they'll say, you know, these problems are so huge. We need to go out and do big things to tackle them. Right. We need, and, and understand that when I say work incrementally, I'm not talking about uh, do one small thing a year. I'm right. saying instead of doing one huge thing, do a thousand small things. Exactly. It, it, it's, it's the same amount of energy. It's just in like a, 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 a more productive, dispersed kind of way. Um, you know, you're not, to use like the old adage, you're not putting all your eggs in one basket. You're actually right. making a bunch of little bets and then incrementally growing those that are working out. It, it, it's, not, it's not a cop-out to say this problem's too big for us to solve. It's right. saying this problem is so huge that we actually need to work incrementally to figure out like the best way to tackle it. Does that make, does that, do you think I answered the question? Because I feel like that, that, that trade-off between the eight acres of the downtown is like not a, I, I don't want to like reject yeah. the question, but I kind of did. No, I don't think you rejected it at all. I okay. think you're saying, um, well, this will lead into, I might break with my format a little bit and lead into a question that will answer it. But um, you're, you're talking about the fact that we tend to fall into these binaries and, you know, I do not right. push back on your characterization of um, people who are identified as progressive of being a little defensive when you say, I don't want to do this project, this all in silver bullet project. And right. that means clearly I don't care about this thing. Um, right. What it means right. is that you want to do it in a more strategic, interesting way. You want to do it in a way that is um, nuanced and meaningful to the very specific needs of individual people, the tiniest elements of this, like that's a true progressive response in my mind. But you're right that there is sort of a monolithic, um, when you think about this, the monolithic stereotypes of both parties, you know, there is a bad trend in lots of people on both sides to say, yeah. if you won't fund yeah. this thing that I like, no matter how terribly it, it executes or might even exacerbate the problem I'm trying to solve, you obviously aren't on my side. Right. Um, that's not the case whatsoever. You can do both. The Main Street Association and the developers on the edge of town can both have a little bit, and they should have exactly that, a little bit <laughs> at a time, um, and move up towards those bigger increments. Well, and that. I think to, uh, to, to maybe defend progressive-minded people, I've learned a lot from uh, the people who I would consider like true ecologists right. who, you know, will say like natural, here's how natural systems work. And if we're going to restore natural systems uh, or we're going to nurture natural systems, we don't go out and make broad things. We actually yeah. nurture them. We actually allow them to evolve and, and, and change and yeah. have that inner complexity 
And I've actually learned a lot from uh, the, you know, the advocates of, of that type of look at nature. I just mm. see, I just see, uh, you know, human habitat as like our nature, you know? Yeah. So as promised, I'm going to mix it up a little bit and because I, I think this draws directly on what we were just talking about and give a pre-submitted question from Brian Russell from West Lafayette, Indiana. So Brian asks, what's the low-hanging fruit? Where do you start building strong towns? We can't all be designing new streets or housing development, um, but just riding a bike to work or recycling in my home doesn't seem like it makes a big difference. What is the most important, impactful way to make a strong town if we aren't you know, the high up top down decision makers. And I might add to that because there's obviously no one size fits all answer to this question. We're not going to tell you like, you know, tactical urbanism and the story. Um, Maybe another way to frame this. Oh yeah. Um, What's the best (laughs) way to isolate the next smallest thing I can do as a private citizen, probably most likely in my specific community? And I love the the quote, uh, you know, from our kind of messaging, you know, keep doing what you can to yeah. build a strong town. Like, what, what can right. you do? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I do, uh, l- let me, uh, I, I'm, 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 I'm not wanting to be preachy on this. So let me, um, let me just say that, like, as a Minnesotan here, I'm, as a Catholic Minnesotan, <laughs> the last thing I am is like a preachy person. But let me, let me try to tell you what I have done. Um, as a way to maybe discuss this a little bit. Um, I, I walk to work. I bike to work. I walk to where I go. I, I, I do like the little things in my life that I can. Um, but I think like the next step then is not going out and redesigning Main Street. Um, the next step is then how can I find people in my day-to-day life who will join me in those things? How can I invite, I, I have a really, really good friend, uh, one of my best friends. In fact, we are meeting in two hours to watch uh, the Twins opener. Uh, we do this every year together. Um, this really good friend of mine lives three blocks away. And we have a thing we do every month together. Um, and I would walk and he would drive. And I, 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 didn't, I didn't like get on his case. I didn't be like, dude, why are you driving here? You know, it's only five blocks. Like what's wrong with you? Um, I would just show up every day and, and I would just walk every time. And when we get out, we'd walk out to his car and he'd say, you want to ride? And I'm like, of course I don't want to ride. Like it's, I live five blocks from here. And you know what? He started walking. He started walking along with me. And so now every time uh, we go to this thing every month, I walk, he walks, we walk home together. It's like one of the most enjoyable times I have every month. Um, I think by bringing people along with us incrementally, uh, you know, by being that person out biking who when you see your neighbor biking, you wave and you say hi and you chat about it, uh, by inviting that person uh, who maybe doesn't bike to say, let's, let's go get an ice cream together. You know, you and I can just bike over here. Let's get our kids involved in this. I, I think what you start to see is you start to see opportunities to expand that a little bit. Um, so, for example... Uh, being out walking and biking in this neighborhood and getting to know people who bike and walk. Um, We've now created like a small group of people who are looking at doing a a modest, a very modest open streets event along with a thing we do annually in the, in the park, in the park in the center of town. Um, I've kind of uh, run that up the flagpole at city hall. There's some openness to it now. uh, And there's certainly some people who will volunteer in the neighborhood to be part of it. That wouldn't have happened two years ago. Um, it's only happened because now 
we've been, you know, I have and other people have been making these like modest connections. So again, I hate to be like the broken record is like incremental, 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 incremental. But if if we think that we're going to go in and like redesign Main Street, you're just going to be frustrated because people are not going to support it. Even if you were the most even if you were the most brilliant planner, like you're the Leonardo da Vinci of planning, <laughs> no one's going to listen to a darn thing you say. Um, you have to build up uh, essentially like the social capital starting in your home, on your block, in your neighborhood. Uh, and, and that's how you actually make changes happen. Um, the thing is you start doing it and it, it builds on itself. It really, really does. And here in my hometown where I have for years been like a very angry, frustrated person, um, you know, and and I've kind of learned through my time here at Strong Towns how to change my approach and alter my approach and and really become, uh, I think, a a different kind of community builder. Um, What I have seen now is that the conversation in my community is changing. Um, and it's not changing just because of me. It's changing because I have found a lot of people who have a similar vision right. and a lot of people who had related visions who now have kind of warmed to the vision of this like, growing coalition of people. And we've gotten to the point where even I have two people in my community who have just been antagonists of me for years just people who i think if you said like these are the mean people like like two of them they're out talking about investing in the downtown about making now the things they want to do are really dumb the things they want to do are like really ridiculous um but they don't want to do them out on the edge of town now they want to do them in the core downtown so i feel like we're moving in the right direction right now we've got them talking about the right place now let's get them talking about the right project I completely agree. And I want to mirror your uh, willingness to share your experiences, because I think that's the only way we can talk about this stuff is based on what we know personally. I mean, when I think about the next smallest thing that I can do, I'll tell you what I'm doing right now, my small things. They're not going to sound very small. Um, So right now I am on the board of a gigantic 10 block open streets event that's going to happen in June. I'm helping plan that. I am helping plan a tactical urbanism traffic calming demonstration in one's in April, one's in June on the same day as the open streets event. We're going to figure out how that works out. Um, And I'm also under contract to buy a four family building that um, knock on wood, I'm going to commit to keeping affordable and developing incrementally. All of those things started with much smaller chunks, many, many months, sometimes years ago. So the um, open streets event happened because I got coffee with someone who I thought was interesting, who I wanted to know a little bit more about her work. And we started thinking about ways to collaborate when I, the traffic calming event is because I replied to an email I got from my community development board that said, Hey, would you like to join, um, this board of people? We meet four times a year and you just give a little bit of feedback to us. And that spawned committees and things grew from there. How I ended up being under contract for a foreign family is because before this, I bought a duplex. I started small with the house that I live in. Way before that, I devoted a lot of time and a lot of research into just incrementally understanding first 
um, where I could have the best impact, scrutinizing myself and thinking about my skills, my talents, my weaknesses are big, um, both in terms of my resources and also me as a person. And, you know, over time you build a life and, you know, I'm not going to tell you everyone should go out and become an affordable developer. I'm saying that you need to do some sort of self-inventory and self-inventory doesn't mean meditating in a cave. It means, um, thinking about who in your community you can grab coffee with and talk about what's going on what on your, you know, do you have a neighbor who's struggling with something like a, you know, maybe they're having sewer problems with the city. What does that point to? How can you fix that? And you probably, you know, have a list in your mind right now. If you're listening to this, write it down and do some follow-up and challenge yourself to build it out and you will find your place. You know, everyone has a role to play in this. It's just changing the questions that you ask yourself. I think that's beautiful. I totally agree. Yeah. You you reminded me of because I'm not a uh, I'm I'm like a horrible reclusive invert, uh, in, introvert at times, and I <laughs> I, I force myself to get to do right. things like that. Um, you know, it's 2018. We use social media. Uh, I uh, was in you know involved myself in some of the community conversations online, and I found people who I didn't know. Um, like there's this one guy named Adam who I really like every time he would comment on something, I'm like, that guy's really smart. That guy's really smart. Like, I don't know anything about this guy. Who is this right. guy? And I, I friended him and I just said that to him. Like, you, you seem like a really smart guy. Uh, you seem like someone I would like to know. And uh, we just communicated back and forth, never met. And one day I said, you know, let's have lunch sometime. And we actually went and had lunch. And that was like three years ago. We've been really good friends ever since. Uh, he lives about eight blocks away from me. And uh, he's one of these people in this like growing coalition of, of people that I, I consider both friends and like allies in, in making change in the community. I found him online and I, I, I like, I wasn't connected. Like there was no, the, you know, Facebook will show you like you have this friends in common. Right. We had no friends in common. <laughs> like we, we were, we were from two different sides of the tracks, right? Like we did not have a lot of overlap. Um, really good friend, brilliant guy, um, right. reaches people that I didn't reach because he does have very different friends than I do. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I think those are the kind of things that it, it doesn't sound uh, as transformative as, uh, as, you know, redesigning Main Street, but really this is how change happens. That's it, true. Let me put it this way. I think it's much harder to change a community conversation than it is to change your main street, but it's much more productive and valuable. Yes. And ideally it will end up changing main street and it'll change it in a better way than if you were a Robert Moses who could come in and say, here's the design for new main street, putting it in on Saturday. (laughs) Well, I think that's actually kind of a great place to end. I said I would give you a one question warning, but this just, you know, all turned into a love fest right at the all end. Right. And I like to end on a happy note. So if we didn't get to your question today, we are saving them for next time. Um, we are probably going to be able to get to about 10 or 15 each session, and we will be doing these ideally every month, as schedule allows. So thank you so much for turning, tuning into the first uh, edition of Ask Strong Towns, our referendum on all things um, involved in our movement. And it, it never hesitate to reach out to me if you want to chat some more and keep doing what you can to build strong towns and stealing your line, Chuck. <laughs> no, perfect. I hope everybody's All right. <laughs> I'll see you next time. Thanks so much. All right. Bye, everyone. Take care.
Taking risk is a necessity to becoming rich. It's also a necessity to go bankrupt. Bill, 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 Bill. That's the story. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Just to echo what you said, there are no silver bullet solutions. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Who made this city? The window is not always open, but if nobody's pushing, then once the window opens, there'll be no chance to go through. I like you. I like your vision of the, of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit. Agenda 21. Yeah.